This week we speak with David Breer. He is the group CEO of 11FS who are focused on changing the fabric of financial services. He believes digital financial services is only 1% finished. We discuss his start in financial services, being the CEO of Metal, NetWest's response to challenger banks, the factors that have enabled the UK to be the global leaders in the financial services space that it is today, growing fintech startup brands, building 11FS into the leading challenger consultancy for the biggest financial services companies in the world today. We also discuss his mentors, books, successes and failures, and much, much more. Enjoy the chat. Three, two, one. David Breer is the group CEO of 11FS, a challenger consultancy that builds and launches the next generation of digital propositions for some of the biggest banks in the world. Before 11FS, he took on a variety of different roles around the financial services industry, working client-side, product-heavy, working with customers and delivering in a corporate environment. He's worn his fair share of suits and shiny shoes and witnessed companies spending billions and billions of pounds and not really achieving very much at all. And he has set himself the target of fixing that. David Breer, welcome to Dynavate. Thank you very much for having me. Absolute pleasure having having you on the show. Um, if there's anyone who can bring us up to date about all of the fantastic changes taking place in financial services, it's definitely you. you. You've had a fascinating career and background. You start your career at Foolproof as a user experience research manager after getting your HND from Norwich City University in 2000 in computing. Tell us how you go from there to running one of the hottest challenger consultancies in the market today. Yeah, I mean, really, just a whole lot of work, right? Uh, I mean, this this thing is uh, this thing is really quite straightforward. You know, the harder the harder you work, the luckier you're going to get in your career. Um, and if I'm honest with you, it was it was kind of coming out of uh, doing my undergrad in, in in computing and realizing that I hadn't really worked hard enough. Um, that, if I'm honest with you, was the the trigger for for really changing that approach and uh, and being able to sort of catapult myself into whatever it was that I really wanted to do to do next. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I tell people now it's uh, I remember the moment really vividly coming out and, you know, I got a two one on my undergrad uh, and actually coming out literally the moment I'd open that envelope and, and opening it up and realizing that actually, you know, a two one is great. You know, a two one is, is good. And anybody who gets that shouldn't be, you know, necessarily disappointed with it. But as mm. somebody who really sort of prides themselves on being a an individual, realizing that actually, do you know what? Coasting through that undergrad degree and getting that grade, um, there was suddenly what three, four hundred thousand other people out there with exactly the sure. same grade, with exactly the same potential, with sure. exactly the same qualifications. So, I mean, the switch that just went off in my head at that point was. Um, don't waste opportunities, uh, you know, maximize the potential that you've got, work harder than anybody else around you. Um, mm. And it's amazing what you can achieve. I mean, average intelligence with uh, 100% <laughs> effort can can get you into to some really good places. And, and literally, that's all I've ever done. So um, uh, Foolproof was great as well. You know, they're a great uh, bunch of people. Uh, Tom and Pete, who founded the company there, um, really set a great cultural environment uh, for pe- for their people who work at, at Foolproof. And I definitely learned a lot from them. But um, but actually, I, I kind of went back to university and, and did a master's degree and sort of deployed that work hard, maximize my potential, um, came out with a double first. And mm. um, sort of, it really just set that fire alight that, do you know what, if I put the same effort into the things that I really enjoyed doing, whether that was sports or anything else kind of in and around that, if I created that same level of, of competition, um, but the competition with myself, then really I, I have a probably a, an, an overly large level of confidence in whatever I put my mind to I can do. Mm, really fascinating. You, you've held several roles in, in financial services across Lloyd's Banking Group, Aviva, Halifax and, and Bud. Tell us how you got your start in the financial services world. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I, I sort of um, I came out of um, really actually I, I came out and the, this story sort of starts way back when I mean, I, I was not really I was not really planning on being like a, a business person. Um, mm. I was playing sports. 
Uh, and unfortunately, um, one particularly bad injury and three ligaments in my left knee later um, hmm. meant I had to go from being, you know, doing sports science and playing sports at a decent level with human biology and everything that goes with that to actually focusing down on mathematics and computing. But the bit that kind of connects those two stories is just my dad giving me a stack of papers and basically saying, do you know what, pick an industry that when you've gone through all of your ed education will still be broken. You know, look at the newspapers, look at the stories, look at the things that you think will will come out on the other end of this what, 10 years from now when you're ready to get into those industries and really try mm. and drive some change. And for mm. me, it was look, oil and gas, uh, which is my dad was in. Uh, it was the uh, the financial services industry because, you know, big banks, slow moving, everything that goes with that. Uh, sure. And this sort of little thing called the Internet, which um, looks like it might have been turned into. Will it catch on? Yeah, you never <laughs> know, right? Um, so so from my perspective, I being greedy, I sort of plumbed for two of those. I, I sort of went, OK, I want to ultimately work in financial services because it's mm. a a big slow moving industry that actually serves and, and touches millions and millions of people you know it really is the the lifeblood of of any economy is the the financial services industry uh in it um but actually i'm going to go the computing route and i'm going to learn actually how that works as well um so for me you know starting in foolproof was really fantastic because what that then gave me was well actually you know sitting through tens of thousands of hours um, looking at what small, minute problems with user experiences can can create um, for people's ability to do very simple things via internet communications. Well, actually, having a great understanding, and I and I should say I did you know undergrad in computing. Uh, my master's was in business information systems, but also I did a um, Cisco certified engineering process i did a microsoft engineering process so what came really apparent really quickly was my sporting background competition my mm. minute element of actually being able to string sentences together and be <laughs> reasonably sort of coherent with those things coupled with a a deep level of understanding of technology and how those things work um mm. those three things together is like a a superpower for change, really. Mm. Um, and if you couple that then with what I learned from Foolproof, which is actually, this isn't really about technology for technology's sake. It's about technology and what it does for humans. Uh, and fundamentally, actually, the better you can make those experiences, the better you can make those services through digital, the better the, the business will perform as an entirety. Um, mm. So for me, really, that was, and I, you know, I sort of set off with, with Foolproof. But for me, really, what I wanted to do uh, you know, I describe my career as a bit of a, a safari, really. I sort of set off to try and look at financial services really from as many different angles as I as I could to really create a unique perspective on it. Because I think people can get very one-dimensional. You know, you can see it from a, a regulatory perspective or you can see it from an incumbent organization or a startup or whatever. Mm. Um, but I honestly think if you really want to create, I mean, as I, as I did from the get-go, as I found that I hadn't done when I didn't really try on my undergrad degree. Uh, if you really want to create a unique perspective that actually people will be interested in or will lead to opportunities of things that you can do, you have to really work hard to create that. So so for me, um, you know, my career really was an exercise in never really caring what my title was, never really caring um, really, if I'm honest with you, what organization where I was. It was about the things that I was learning. And I had a really mm. strict kind of view with myself, which is every three months, there's a bullet point that has to go onto my CV of the thing I've achieved that has made me more experienced in the things that I'm doing in order to feel like I'm progressing. And if at the point where actually three months go by and I couldn't put a bullet point on, the, on my CV, it was sure. at that point time to change roles or it was time to change companies. Mm, really interesting. Well, we're going to have a, a long, wind, winding conversation about all of that from the slow-moving financial services space that you mentioned to really how it's changed significantly in recent years to your time at Bud, um, becoming the CEO of Metal. Uh, we'll talk about open banking and, and what you've taken away from your 
experience growing 11FS into the global brand that it is today. So I hope you've cleared your calendar for the rest of the day. Um, but let's talk a little bit about Bud first, because you you become non-executive director in 2016. They're an open banking platform that uses customers' transactional data to understand where we can help them save money uh, and give them better deals, i.e. if they're paying too much for the for an electricity bill. It also helps clients improve their credit profile. They're really one of the fintech success stories of the last handful of years. What first attracted you to the company? Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, look, I'm a big fan of uh, Ed Maslavekas, his, uh, the CEO of, of Bud. He um, had a fantastic vision in terms of actually what he wanted to um, achieve with Bud and actually, you know, set out on that. I really love the the vibe with Bud as well. They've always had a, a great culture. It's a, a collection of friends who have known each other for a really long period of time coming together to continue that friendship into building out an organization. And the success that they're now having with, you know, deals that they've announced publicly with HSBC and and various other sort of players in the, the space. Um, as you say, it really feels like a, a moment because, you know, their friendship, their expertise, Ed's entrepreneurial spirit with that, mm. coupled with open banking and everything that could be done. Uh, and when I, you know, when I first got involved with uh, with Ed and and, and Bud and, and the team, I mean, it was literally four or five people at that stage. Mm. Uh, you know, I remember going to the the sort of first office and it being, uh, you know, a, a tiny little space in the in the corner. And what they've achieved over you know the last few years, expanding that out, is just is just phenomenal. So, and and I say just phenomenal. I mean, anybody can do amazing things. Anybody can build amazing technology. But actually, having one of the largest global financial services organizations like HSBC to recognize that talent, to recognize mm -hmm. that them with 25 you know, people at the time can build something that HSBC couldn't do with all of their money and tens of thousands of engineers that they can deploy against it. That's something super, super special. So, uh, so yeah, it was a, it was a good journey with those guys at the, at the beginning, helping them sort of get going and, and sort of uh, get out there and be, uh, be known um, and they've really gone from strength to strength. So it's been great to see. Fast forward a couple of years and you become CEO of Metal in, in 2017. That's NatWest and RBS answer to the challenger banks of Tide, Monzo, Starling, etc. Uh, now, at, at this moment, their customer base is still relatively small, but but growing. What does Metal do that other providers on the marketplace can't? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, my advice to anybody out there, don't try and be the CEO of a, of a, a one business and be the CEO of building a brand new challenge bank <laughs> at the same time. Because that was, I mean, when you, when people sort of say um, there's only so many hours in the day, like sure. there literally is only so many hours in the day. So, uh, yeah. you know, at that time I was, uh, you know, CEO of 11FS as well as CEO of um, uh, of Metal for NatWest. Uh, and actually, at the point as well, we were we were kicking off uh, 11FS Foundry, which is a core banking system we're building out, which I'm sure we'll come to at some point as well. So, yeah, there's there is definitely so many hours in a day, but Metal really was set up to be a um, there's sort of two lenses on what Metal really is. There's the lens that is well, Metal is a challenger SME bank, um, and actually, what that means is really the gap in the financial services space when it comes to SMEs is really what it just gives people. You know, if you look at what big incumbent banks give SMEs to manage their business, it's essentially an overdraft and a balance. Mm. Um, you know, it's the equivalent of um, steering your car by looking in the rearview mirror. Uh, it really doesn't give you the ability to to manage or respond to the road or respond to the challenges that will be there from, a, from an SME's perspective. So really what we wanted to develop and create with that was, well, forward-looking business banking because really no business starts their organization to you know do financial services nobody nobody who's running a small business wakes up and goes do you know what i need more payments or more banking in my life sure. um sure. so actually how could we create um something that took away the noise of that day-to-day -day administration from people uh, mm. and allowed them really to focus on running their business um so yeah, at uh, at Eleven FS, we with NatWest and with Alison Rose, who's the the CEO of uh, of NatWest, sort of embarked on really what would that be, and actually not only what would that be, but fundamentally how do you make the scale of change that you would need to 
within a you know big incumbent organization like NatWest um, in order to deploy startup mentalities and startup methodologies um, to achieve that outcome. Because, I mean, what you see out there in the market is a real plethora of, you know, bank-led challenger banks. Sure. Um, but many of them really fail because of the way in which they do them. You know, I'm a big, I'm a big believer. I must literally say this like a thousand times a week, which is it, it really ain't what you do. It's the way that you do it. Um, and while many organizations kind of set a big aspiration for actually achieving things, you know, build out a challenge, you know, Monzo isn't that hard. We could do Monzo. And you're like, okay, go ahead. Like, go ahead. You know, <laughs> how would you do that? You know, what would be your sure. approach to doing it? And mm. then suddenly they've got 400 people and like 75 different vendors and they've spent 150 million pounds and you're like, okay, it's not that easy, is it? You know? Mm. So, um, it comes back to kind of what I said about Bud a minute ago was, I mean, the the brilliance in what they do is they bring together talented people, they deploy them against stimulating problems, and they create around them a great environment to work and a a great culture. Um, and that's really what we we set out to achieve with with Metal was, you know, this wasn't about having a hundred people. I mean, at the peak when I was there it was 56, 57 people, which is, mm. you know, for a, for a startup is sure. a, a decent size. For mm. a big incumbent bank, well, I mean, the, usually the meetings just to kick off a project will involve <laughs> more than 57 people, you know? So, um, so yeah, how you deploy those startup mentality, startup approaches, deploy real consumer understanding by following jobs to be done frameworks and really understanding what consumers needs really were. Um, mm. And the outcome has been has been great. You know, we got a product to market really, really quickly. Uh, Allison was uh, really happy with the, the approaches that we're taking. I mean, it feels like seconds ago, actually, we, you know, we set ourselves a pretty aggressive target to show people that if you do it in a different way, you achieve different outcomes. And if it, I mean, honestly, it feels like two seconds ago, we were buying Allison and, and Ross McEwen at the time, a, a mince pie and a, uh, uh, I think it was a caramel spiced latte Right. around christmas time sure. uh, with the very first card that actually we sort of deployed on on metal and actually i mean those types of projects is is really exactly what we've we've now done uh globally whether it's hong kong or singapore or the us or saudi or south africa um there's almost a a real revolution that's kind of coming uh, not just from the fintech sphere, but the pressure that this fintech sphere is essentially applying against incumbent organizations to not just talk a good game now, but, um, you know, actually execute. Um, mm. And I think a lot of them have, have tried the execution approach, you know, many times before. I mean, if you look at on the other side of the business, if you look at something like Bo, uh, or if you look at, you know, something like what JP Morgan Chaser did with Finn actually sure. out in the US. Um, these are kind of examples of big organizations doing startup things like big organizations, which actually almost defeats the point of the approach that you're taking. Um, you can't expect to um, change your aspiration without changing your attitude to delivery. Um, and almost, uh, I come back to it again, I'm going to say it for the second time here, it's it's not what you do, it's the way that you do it. That's, uh, that that's really important. It. Mm, really fascinating. I, I mean, the challenger banks, from from my perspective, and based on the people that I've spoken to, they've really, as we all know, they've they've raised the bar for customer experience and sort of what people expect to get from their banking services more broadly. But they're still struggling, from what I hear, to get users to really use the service in the way that they want to. I.e., put their full salaries in it and uh, and and really sort of uh, commit to their to their platforms. In in what ways? In what other ways are these challenger banks making money and how how can they get over that hurdle to really get consumers to really commit to uh, using the bank in the way that they want to, considering that we've banked with Lloyd's, HSBC and Barclays from the time that we've been old enough to sort of kick a football or what have you? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few different things in there, which is uh, customers, uh, I mean, the general population... Uh, are very short-minded with these things to a certain degree. So I think the the problem around, well, Barclays or HSBC or Lloyds have been around forever. Um, no one will bank with somebody that they've never heard of, right? And while that's true, 
um, you know, there's very good examples in other industries that actually that changes really quickly. Um, mm. Because really, if you kind of think brand recognition is literally just that, it's something that you've seen consistently and you will recognize. And really, all that is, is a proxy for how much money that somebody spent on above the line marketing, right? So, you know, when it comes to um, will people bank with people that they've never heard of? Like, no, of course not. But equally, none of us would have thought that we'd be buying insurance predicated on the fact that it gives us a free meerkat in the hmm. UK in the way that most people do. You know, you just wouldn't have expected that. When I was sure. back in Aviva, would I expected that compare the market would have been a thing or money hmm. supermarket really would have been a thing? No, hmm. um, because they weren't brands at that point. So it was almost the the unknown threat. Um, but with a good above the, uh, above the line marketing campaign, um, backed up by fundamentally delivering on those brand promises that they they put out there in terms of their marketing. I mean, nobody understood what HSBC was 300 years ago, but you know, 300 years of work has has kind of got them to to where they are now. So sure. I, I I think there's a uh, a very short termistness to um, you know people's brand recognition, um, and actually, I mean, we're already seeing Monzo and Starling do. Uh, TV adverts, you know, we're seeing recognized uh, recognition of those brands uh, pretty high up on things like net promoter score rankings and and whatnot, which for me actually ties into, I mean, no, no bank started with, you know, 15 different visions and, you know, 5,000 different types of products. They all started with one thing that they did really well that mm. they parlayed that success into doing other things. Um, mm. I think when it comes back to the to the revenue model, I think it's a very similar debate as well, is that the point that we're at in the cycle, I mean, the indications are good. You know, if you look at Monzo, I mean, in a four-year period and acquiring nearly 5 million customers in a market the size of the UK is pretty good it's going. Pretty yeah. um, you know, and actually in terms of what they can now do with that customer base in terms of the level of loyalty or you know, brand loyalty that they actually have from that consumer base. I mean, banking is predicated on lending, right? If they start being able to do lending to the SME customers and the retail customers that they have in a profitable way, then actually that's, they actually might start backing up some of those crazy big valuations that we're sort of seeing. Uh, and mm. it's not just them. I mean, if you look at Chime over in the US or, you know, New Bank down in Brazil, um, there is just an amazing influx of, new players delivering real uh, win-wins for them and for their consumers. Um, and this all just really points to, again, a financial services industry that just hasn't kept with the times. Your point is absolutely on the money, which is industry has changed very slowly, but every industry outside of financial services has changed amazingly quickly. Sure. So the expectations of customers is not being set uh, by Barclays or NatWest or, or anybody right now. It's, it's being set by set Amazon. By Absolutely. It is right, Amazon, and it is Apple and, and Google. Yeah. And, and that's, um, you know, that's yeah. the exciting thing is um, financial services used to be really boring. Mm. And actually, it's not now, you know, like fintech and financial services is honestly, I think one of the greatest industries that's out there right now, because not only is it exciting, it has the, the potential to fundamentally shape the destiny of, of generations to come. So I really think it's yeah. where we are in a moment uh, and it's a um, it's a pretty wonderful moment at that. And let's talk about why that is specifically in the UK, because, as you say, financial services right now is very hot. It's very sexy, but it wasn't always so. Um, and I'm just wondering, is the reason for that regulation, open banking and PSD2 or is that? Just because of you know the, the fact that we've just gotten frustrated with our, our 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 antiquated legacy banking services and the entrepreneurial spirit in the UK has just sort of said enough enough is enough. Where has that come from? Has it come from regulation or has it come from just the entrepreneurial, open, free market spirit? Yeah, I mean, and any um, any evolution, any revolution, it's usually a, a sort of a confluence of forces, isn't it? And uh, I think this is probably no different to that. I think really, I mean, fintech as a thing was born out of the 2008 financial crisis, really. You know, actually what we saw, particularly in the UK, and actually, I mean, it should be said that the UK really has been the the epicenter for fintech yeah, because of that change. You know, mm. what we saw from 2008 really was 
are local uh, regulators and government taking a very different approach to the rest of the planet when it came to what they thought the problem was and what they thought the solution was uh, you know for anybody who's too young to to remember the the last financial you know the last crisis we went through uh pre-covid <laughs> you know 2008 then um banks did silly things got themselves into liquidity problems the whole system stopped and we went into a recession mm. now what the fca did which was smart was this wasn't just about bailing out uh, Lloyd's Banking Group and bailing out RBS. You know, this wasn't about propping up, just propping up the, you know, the big boys and girls in the industry. It was actually uh, a mandate that they then flowed down from that to actually create competition. Because hmm. actually, if the pace of the industry has been slow, because Barclays is only worrying about HSBC and Lloyd's and Lloyd's is only worried about Barclays and NetWest, so, then we'll you get There's into no that incentive almost, for innovation. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's it's sort of a Mexican standoff of who's <laughs> going to do something first. Because sure. if you only have to keep parity with other people who are moving slow, then yeah. really, what's the what's the benefit? And sure. obviously, I mean, competition is a fundamental ingredient to ensuring that consumers get great service the at the end of that. Best products and services. Yeah. So for me, the that that change. And it was particular. There was a particular lady called Harriet Baldwin that was in the Conservative government at the time who did uh, a huge amount of work to create that mandate for the FCA and the PRA. And mm. it's amazing that it almost boils down to you know ten meetings in the government at that period of time has shaped out the financial services industry globally for the next you know a hundred years basically. Um, but with that competition mandate, with the Things like the advancements that they did with regulatory sandboxes, mm. with uh, looking at the potential for uh, bringing new banking players and issuing new banking licenses. Well, that sort of kick-started fintech in the UK in a major way. But mm. obviously, with that comes well a vibrant creative industry, very good technologists, entrepreneurial capability. Uh, you know, investment potential from VCs sure. and all of those things, you know, all of those different ingredients is, uh, has kind of created the the beautiful cake that we have that is fintech <laughs> right now. Really fascinating. And and just on that competition piece, in the early days, the um, Monzos and Starlings and Tides of this bank really set up in opposition to the tier one and tier two banks. They said, look, we are the challenger to the mainstream. And now we're sort of seeing, we're seeing less of that narrative and that rhetoric from the challenger banks is it is it because they're seeing that sort of competition is better than competition nowadays what you know what 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 has prompt first of all do you agree with that analysis and second of all what's prompted that change if if that change exists yeah i mean um look with it, i mean essentially a lot of the organizations that started up in that period if you look at the you know the the Monzos and the the Revoluts. I mean, these are relatively young people starting businesses. And I, I always say, look, the easiest way to cause disruption in the market is to point fingers at what other people are not doing and then what you're going to do. Um, but actually, I think as the dynamic of that changed and actually the organizations were able to actually deliver, then it's easier to talk about what you're doing and let people, other people, describe the gap between you and sure. the other setup and i think a lot of that not only sort of ties back to um the brand promise but actually the way in which these organizations have manifested their culture um you know if you're um uh if your you know girlfriend or boyfriend is always talking about your their ex well, that's just a bit weird, isn't it? You know, and actually being in a situation where if Tom or Anne or Nikolai were standing up and just talking about the competition all the time, rather mm. than talking about what they were doing, well, mm. that would be a a much more, um, you know, a, a aggressive, much more um, limiting culture to set up for those organizations. And I think while it was a great jumping off point to start with, I think, you know, Anne and Tom and Nikolai and the team, uh, are all very much more focused now on their lane because sure. they know if they stick to what they believe and they, they stick to what they know that they can do, that's how they win. Um, I, I do think there is something in that around them just sort of growing up over this period of time as well mm. um, because really the the dynamic of the industry has changed quite dramatically. 
and they are they are serious people. Uh, the other thing I'd sort of say as well is like when you're not a regulated entity, the things that you can say as opposed to when you are a regulated sure. entity, very, right. very different as well. Yeah. So, um, you know, being in a situation where I, I mean, I don't for one second think that, you know, Anne Bowden doesn't think that she's in competition with other organizations or fundamentally that they're not competing for attention or for customers. Um, but they're just getting a bit smarter and a bit wiser, having been, you know, the CEO of a bank for a couple of years now to really what they they should and what they could say, if that makes sense. Mm, really fascinating. Let, let's talk a little bit about 11FS. You're a challenger consultancy that builds and launches the next generation of digital propositions for some of the biggest banks in the world. Talk a little bit about what some of the problems are that, you, that your customers have and how do you help solve them? Yeah, it's been it's been really interesting. I mean, the last four years have been um, pretty amazing, I have to say. It's been probably like the longest four years of my life, but also the, <laughs> uh, the shortest as well, because it feels like about four seconds ago that I was kind of ringing Jason and, and Simon and, and, and Ross and the, the founding team to go, do you know what? I think we should do this thing. I think it would be interesting. I think there's a moment. I think we can really make this work. Right. Um, but over those four years, as you say, we've you know built out uh, with NatWest um, Metal, but equally with Standard Chartered Mox over in Hong Kong, um, mm. with people like Grab in Singapore, um, over in the US right now, we're in a beta stage of a uh, a challenger bank uh, out in the Middle East region. We're, we're in uh, beta with a challenger bank now as well. Uh, we've been doing it down in South Africa, all over the world, really. Oh. And it kind of starts from that story, really, which is look, in 2008, something amazing happened here. Sure. And now what we're seeing is almost kind of a standard change adoption curve, which is, well, Monetary Authority of Singapore changed its approach. Uh, and then... HKMA in Hong Kong, the regulator in Hong Kong, changed its approach as well. And we're seeing those ripples of what happened in in London in you know 2008 to 2010 um, sort of ripple out across all of the different shores, you know, Australia and Canada and uh, and like say South Africa, really sort of changing their approaches to doing those things. Uh, and really, what what we've been doing is you know beating the drum as loudly as we can. Uh, as frequently as we can for that level of change, because you know fundamentally this isn't a uh, this isn't about banking. This is about the impact that digital has on banking. Because as you say, consumer expectations is changing rapidly, mm. and actually those big incumbent banks that were able just to worry about each other now have this existential threat to them coming from not only fintechs that are coming in that are requiring millions and millions of customers. But Apple and Google and Facebook and all these people who oh. have bigger brands and more investment potential than than they ever could dream of. So, you know, actually, it's again, it's just such a it's such a wonderful time to do what we do, because if you're really passionate about the subject matter, then things are changing every 24 to 48 hours. And the industry is constantly progressing and constantly evolving and new comp you know, competitors are coming into the market and new opportunities are presenting themselves. Um but for us at 11FS, I mean, we're we're sort of four or five different companies in the mix. We, we're a services business, so we're building out new challenges and strategies for people. We've got product businesses. We've got uh, 11FS Pulse, which is a global benchmarking tool, which oh. some of the biggest banks on the planet have got access to. Uh, 11FS Foundry, which is our, uh, our take on really what, um, having built out now five or six of these challenges, the problem that you get to is always the strategic underlying infrastructure. Um, and for us, what Foundry is, is what we believe core banking and architecture should be going forwards. Um, and for us, it, it's just a tool that actually allows our services businesses to to work more efficiently and get to market much more quickly. Um, mm. But equally, really a big part of 11FS from the beginning has been uh, kind of our media presence. And in a similar sense to what I was saying a second ago about the, you know, the Monzos and the Revoluts and the Starlings, right. well, they were never going to compete with NatWest and Barclays and HSBC in the first few years. Um, and for us, actually, we've been very clear from the get-go that actually we are a sort of media-led organization. And what we mean by that is that actually we will uh, create content, we will create the community, we will... Uh, push forwards the agenda of the industry 
over and above the things that we do for ourselves. Um, because you we, create we, a lot of content. Well, we do, we do, but we, I mean, our, our first, our first and foremost point is like uh, our principle really is that the, the fabric of financial services is, is going to change. And actually we believe we can have a, a really large impact on the, the fabric of financial services over the next mm. five to 10 years. But equally, I'm really aware that actually not all of that is going to be things that we will do. So actually, the the content for us is is a way of supercharging an industry and supercharging a community in order to people who are like minded like us. You know, you might want to work with 11FS. You might want to go and do something completely independently from 11FS, but be huh. inspired by the things that we can kind of put out. Um because if the fabric of financial services is up for changing and, you know, Bud are doing their bit and Monzo are doing their bit and the yeah. is doing their bit, sure. then what can it just other people grows do the pie. To... Exactly. What yeah. can other people do to shape that narrative and build out this thing? And, and that's why mm. so much of what we do, community is really at the core of it. Because if you can, you know, change somebody's horizons or change somebody's perspective on the way in which the industry is going to shape out, they might just be the next Anne Bowden or Tom Blomfield or sure. whatever. Really fascinating. So so just on that point of uh, creating a media presence and, and beating the drum very loudly, uh, you also host multiple podcasts, including Fintech Insider, which is downloaded over in, in over 100 countries every week. And it's one of the top business podcasts on iTunes. Uh, Blockchain Insider, a dedicated podcast specializing in all things blockchain, uh, ledger technology and cryptocurrencies, InsureTech Insider, the latest news, insights and trends in the InsureTech industry and, and connection interrupted. You seem to be going all in on podcasts. Do you really think this podcasting thing is going to take off? Or <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if uh, I mean, I should say it's it creates a it creates a weird dynamic for these things as well, because actually I mean, what we sort of set out to do with that, and it kind of goes back to that community point a little bit, was, I mean, as, you know, the founders of the company, we know some, you know, really interesting people. And actually, we end up having very interesting conversations in a pub or something with people. Yeah. And actually, we're so passionate about this industry, we're so passionate about this change. There wasn't anything really out there that gave... Uh, gave the messages in the way that we would want to consume them. Mm. You know, financial services literature or financial, you know, we're talking like four years ago here, right? So mm. financial services uh, content was boring as all hell, you know, and actually yeah. really what we set out to do, uh, you know, I remember me, Jason and Simon talking about it. It was like, okay, what would loose women and top gear <laughs> for fintech be? Love it. Um, and that's really what we set out to do was just Love like it. laid back, you know, have like what would the equivalent of having a beer with a CEO of a big bank sure. and just recording that conversation and putting it all out be? Mm. Um, and the thing that we try and do with that is is make it as as human as we can do. Um, so I think I think podcasting is definitely a, a huge thing. I think live video is definitely a huge thing, mm -hmm. um, and it changes that dynamic. Again, if you go back to look, we were we were built around a, a table in a Starbucks. And at the point where there was five of us sat around at the table in a Starbucks, well, how does, you know, scrappy little 11FS uh, compete with McKinsey and Accenture? Well, we don't play their game for starters. Mm. So mm. our ability to compete with, you know, taking out adverts in an airport, well, actually, the way in which we compete with that is we have 185 countries a week downloading our podcast, meaning that actually they're choosing to engage with our content, sure. not not you're forcing them to, to look at an advert while they're queuing up to get on a right. plane, exactly. but they choose to listen to us when they're sat mm. on the plane. And mm. now that's a really big difference because people are welcoming you into their private life. They're welcoming you into those moments where they're walking the dog or cutting mm -hmm. the grass. Mm -hmm. So your level of engagement with them changes dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. And the and that's the difference between you know traditional media. You know, reading a blog post is great, but if you listen to the the words and the passion and the 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 way in which somebody's saying something, it changes the dynamic of that relationship. And yeah. it, and it gets weird. I mean, we me and Jason had a really weird moment a couple of years ago. We went to Hong Kong, and we went to we were meeting the, with a CEO of a of a bank in Hong Kong. We got out of the taxi about three or four hundred meters from the 
the uh, the office because of traffic and everything. So we so we ran to get there, and we were it was hot, but we I mean we we turned up in shorts and t shirt because it was hot. Uh, <laughs> we dressed appropriately, you know. Um, but it, we we were so we were melting. Um, mm-hmm. The CEO mm-hmm. of this bank turns up, and I won't I won't name the name the name of the person, but mm-hmm. um, the minute that that happened, they turned up immaculate, like so immaculately dressed in a way that I've never seen before. <laughs> That's awkward. But, but they wanted to have pictures taken at the beginning of the meeting because they listen oh, to the podcast no. every week. Oh no! Oh, and, I, I, and that's great. I mean, I, I yeah. as a as shaved head, I could mop my brow and have a picture taken, sure. and it's great. But sure. but it just shows the change in the dynamic of what um, what these things do. Because actually, you know, how many if you're a a partner at Accenture or you're a partner at Deloitte. How many meetings do you can you physically fit into a day mm-hmm. to talk to people and create relationships? Well, you've got well, infinite scale with a the podcast. There we go. And that's the thing. You know, the idea of do things that scale rather yeah. than do things that don't scale, that mm. was the way that we we felt that we could have real cut through on that is you've got to create content that is as entertaining as it is informative. Mm. Uh, and if you can get that balance right, well, people will choose to engage with your content, which actually gives you the ability to then talk to them to which gives you the ability to create relationships with them sure. which just changes the dynamic and at that point you're you know like literally I, I, it, bizarrely we it kind of went through such a growth period where i mean we do live events and we'll get you know hundreds of people turning up for live events obviously pre-covid uh, yeah. to to be in a situation where people want to engage with this thing yeah. because it's sort of kindling a movement which is fintech well they feel as though they they already know you i think that's the amazing thing to me about podcasts when people when I meet people that have been listening to my podcast and I have no idea who the, who this who this person is but they feel as though they already know me because they've been listening to my voice drone on for you know for weeks and weeks and I think it it cuts the time to uh decision it cuts the time to developing a relationship because you have that that ongoing week-to-week conversation going into someone's ears as they're mowing the lawn or they're doing the dishes or they're taking the dog for a walk. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the only thing that's missing, and, and I, I think I completely agree with that. The only thing that I found that's missing from podcasting is, is feedback. Huh. Um, and that's where I think increasingly like live video is great sure. because um, podcasting gives you the ability for them to understand you, but actually live video gives you, so, I mean, we've this uh, every morning right now we're doing a, uh, a live streaming show where I'll bring on CEO of a bank or somebody in sports psychology who I think is interesting or mm. you know CEO of a new fintech whatever and um, mm. just to kind of have like a half an hour chat and actually live video live streaming in that way and seeing comments and feedback and you know ideas spark in real time in the uh, the communications around it there's something to that that I think really complements what um what the sort of closed loop uh, podcasting side of things is, but uh, it's great. I mean, again, we've got more abilities to reach out and connect with people than we we ever have done before. Sure. Um, and for people to to really use that to try and educate an industry, uh, I think is 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 mm. really great times. I mean, the amount of people who we get reaching out to say it's it's kind of like a an education to uh, to to listen to the podcast. I mean, even even this week, we again, I, I won't name names of it, but me and um, Simon and Sam Moore, who runs our US business, um, did a fireside chat with a, I mean, one of the biggest technology companies on the planet. Mm. And they were referencing to us how the content that we put out shapes their views on financial services. And at that point, my tiny little brain exploded <laughs> because it's just, it's just such a great compliment. Yeah. Yeah, really. The challenge now is actually finding the time to consume all of this fantastic content. It's 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 not information. It's information selection now. There's so many books, amazing books out there. There's so many amazing audio books and podcasts. It's finding the time. Uh, and that's the challenge for me. It is. Um, l- last couple of questions. There are so many more questions that I've got for you, but we definitely don't have time. We're going to have to invite you back on the, on the show a little bit um, another time to finish this off. But you you say that digital banking is only 1% done. This is probably something alluding to what you were talking about a little bit earlier. That's really surprising for me to hear that, considering all of the changes that we've seen over the last however many years in financial services. How much further can digital banking go? 1%? Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, from from my perspective, and and look, that's been almost our. It is our mantra as a company. It is our recruitment tool. It is everything because essentially mm. our belief that while the industry has come a, a huge amount of of uh, of places and and move so far forward, that but that with the amount of regulatory change that's coming along, the fact that technology is becoming uh, you know, emerging and being commoditized at a much greater rate than ever before, that the competitive landscape is changing so dramatically. I mean, all of these things, for me, that's why the world is moving faster than financial services. Um, and while, you know, it sounds quite scary when you say, well, digital banking is only 1% finished, really what we're saying is that there's 99% of this journey still to go. Amazing. And really, if I'm honest with you, given the speed of the industry, I don't I don't expect this to be at 2% anytime soon, because actually uh, it's as much a mentality that in order to serve consumers that we will always be evolving, we will always be changing, there will always be the, the next new thing that evolves the industry and evolves our thinking. Mm. Um, the problem is, is that when people think they're done, um, and mm. actually, I think if you look at many of the incumbent organisations, I mean, the products and services haven't changed for nearly a you know a hundred years in terms of the constructs of of many of their products. So when you think you're done, when you think you've won, that's mm. usually the point where actually you're probably most susceptible to a, a competitor or a disaster or sure. something that you don't even suspect. So really, when we say yeah, I mean, really, when we say digital banking is one percent finished, we say stay hungry. You know, yeah. stay open to the fact that you're not right. Stay open to the fact that the industry is moving so quickly, and mm. the fact that you need to continually keep learning and that you continually need to keep listening to consumers. Mm, really inspiring, David. I've, I know I've only got you for a few more minutes, so um, final question before we get into everyone's favorite questions towards the back end of the interview. This is to do with COVID nineteen and. Obviously, we're sort of five months, four or five months in, into this now. And now that uh, we've, the initial shock has sort of faded and we're, we've all, we're all more comfortable in these remote working environments, uh, connectivity isn't an issue anymore. We're all working from home. I'm sure we're all used to seeing each other's kids on uh, Zoom calls and Skype chats, etc. cetera. Um, talk a little bit about where we are right now, sort of where you are as an 11FS as relates as relates to sort of the the uh, morale of your team what the future looks like over the next sort of 6 to 12 18 months if you've got a crystal ball um now that the initial shock of sort of moving to remote working environments is over where are you now as an organization and talk a little bit more broadly about sort of where the other clients that you work with are as well yeah, it's been it's been really interesting. I mean, obviously, nobody sort of saw COVID coming. Um, I think everybody's gonna have to have a, you know, what happens if this happens again plan at some sure. point. But I, I think for us as an organization, I mean, we are by nature, you know, from from when in there was four of us starting out the company, we, we've always sort of operated remotely. You know, I live in Norwich, Jason lives in, in uh, Rutland, mm. uh, Ross is up in Edinburgh. Um, okay. so it really, I mean, the, the remote nature of working sure. isn't really too much of a problem, but obviously, I mean, this is remote working under the most period of life <laughs> that most people have ever really experienced. Sure. You know? right. Um, so, so I think the, the way in which to sort of handle that or even frame that is I think employee, uh, employers with good culture, I think has managed to sustain that culture through this period. I think those organizations with um, a culture that didn't allow people to remotely work before mm. probably needs to ask themselves a lot of questions around why that was. Mm. Um, you know, if you didn't trust your employees to work from home, being mm. forced to do it for a three month period is very scary to you. Sure. You know, if you didn't have collaboration tools or video conferencing or even uh, you know remote access kind of set up for people, then it's been a lot of change and a uh, you know a really big period of of disruption. Um, I think if you take all of the personal side of things out there in terms of you know uh, the scary nature it is for family and friends and you know wearing masks and catching a disease and you sure. know a lot of people dying and pure, you know purely sort of focus on the the sort of professional side, then 
I think actually a lot of organizations are going to come out of this probably better off, if I'm honest mm. with you. Um, I think you'll find the communications that have been set in have almost been a bit of a leveler. Um, you know, if you kind of work in a big bank, you're sort of blessed every so often to see the CEO. But actually, at the point where people are really trying to overly compl- uh, communicate, then actually the leveler is that, well, the CEO is not somebody stood on a stage, you know, 30 meters away from me or on a video that I see on our intranet, mm. but they're just another box on the screen in a Zoom call. Mm. Um, and I think the the sort of level of transparency that actually you get from that and the opportunities that it brings for different levels to talk to each other within those organizations. I actually think there are going to be a lot of things that people do take forward post this. Um, I think from a from a financial services perspective, particularly, um, it's been a really interesting period because I think it has, uh, it's kind of been a, a sort of almost an emperor's new clothes scenario. Hmm. Um, I think a lot of people have realized that um, the deficiencies that they have, either from an operational or from a technological perspective, are really the things that have hindered their ability to deal with this period more efficiently uh, and much more cost effectively. And it's why actually, you know, we're seeing fintechs sort of out of this period do amazingly well when it comes to, sure. you know, loan distribution or serving customers. Or, I mean, I was talking to, um, you know, Challenger Bank over in the US yesterday, Current. They've acquired a hundred thousand customers a month since Amazing. lockdown. Wow! Like that is just phenomenal because actually consumers oh. have been given no choice but to deal with digital services, right. and the digital services can scale really effectively to deal sure. with that. So, you know, I, I honestly think there'll be there'll be some really good things that come out of this. Um, whether it outweighs, you know, not being able to um, see your friends and see some of your family, um, I'm not sure we know yet. Um, but I think the long-term tale of this crisis, very similar to the long-term tale of the financial crisis uh, in 2008, will actually be very, very positive for the industry mm. because, you know, usually out of the the trials and the tribulations and the turmoil, uh, there is usually really interesting things that people, particularly entrepreneurs, find. Uh, they always find an opportunity in the crisis, right? They always do, entrepreneurs. David, really fascinating speaking to you. Have you, have you got five more minutes for us? Yeah, go for it. So let's get into everyone's favorite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So I'm really excited to ask you some of these as well, more slightly personal questions about you, the individual. Tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Yeah, I mean, look, I fail all the time. Um, I think <laughs> if, if I'm honest with you, and, and I, don't, I don't wear that as a badge of honor, like I, I'd like to do it less if possible, <laughs> you know, that would be nice. But for, from my perspective, I, I think... I don't, I don't see that as a problem. Um, the trick is not to fail in really huge things. Um, so if the company failed, that would be a problem, right? Mm. But actually, I mean, and it kind of goes back to my sporting days, if I'm honest with you, is, uh, I mean, I missed lots and lots of shots, uh, but it didn't stop me practicing and it didn't knock my confidence to take other shots. Mm. Um, so in terms of like day to day, I got stuff wrong all the time. Um, and actually, I think the thing about being, uh, you know, trying to be a good leader is admitting when you're wrong, mm. but also talking to other people and bringing other people's opinions into shaping yours. Um, because just because you're the CEO or just because you're senior in an organization doesn't give you uh, infallibility to mm. being wrong. Um, but actually, what it does is it gives you the responsibility to show people what good manners looks like and good behavior is and part of that is putting your hands up and saying that you're wrong really fascinating the the mentors question tell us about some of your early mentors who influenced the way that you think about technology the way you think about financial services and entrepreneurship um do you know what i've never really had um i've never really had a mentor if i'm honest Mm. with you you know i've never really had that sort of um you know guiding guiding light as it mm-hmm. were i mean now the the chairman that we've got at 11fs sean meadows i mean when i was uh when i was at aviva he was the ceo of aviva which basically means i was essentially ten thousand layers below him um, <laughs> and, and he lovingly refers to having no idea that i was at the, company <laughs> at the time That's um, nice. but um but I, I think people like that you know what i took from sean you know i had the pleasure of sort of presenting to him 
uh, at his board a few times while I was at Aviva. And actually what I kind of learned from engagements with senior people um, in a positive way was that actually you don't have to be uh, a dick when you're senior. <laughs> and actually it's as simple as that. It's is like, that a revelation for a lot of people? It is. And sadly it is, particularly in a corporate environment. I mean, it's um, being more senior gives you more of a um, freedom to act badly. Mm. Um, and if I'm honest, I think the thing I'd sort of say around, I mean, my, my greatest mentors are people that didn't realize they were being a mentor because they are actually people who behaved really badly through my career that didn't show me what to do, but showed me what not to do. What not to do. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I honestly think there's yeah, something in that is that, I mean, a lot of people, uh, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of young people kind of trying to get into the industry will be like, well, I, you know, I want to go and work at like Google or Apple or whatever. Sure. I mean, I really think it's like, find the like weirdest organization with like the biggest problems and go and learn about why those things are being created. Because all of that has just led to me being, it's why I, I fixate so much on culture now because so much of, of what makes an organization work or not work is is not you know how good the idea was or how visionary the ceo is it's like the it's the culture within those organizations that actually make things happen like really i mean on a day-to-day -day basis uh i will not i mean 11fs right now were what 210 220 people mm. um i do not shape the destiny of the company now uh the culture is manifested by how everybody is within the organization on a day-to-day -day basis and how successful we are is more about how each of those individuals acts not really how i act and mm. actually the the sooner i think leaders really realize that the responsibility that they have i mean the people in the company don't work for me i work for them mm. and i think at the point where people realize that and the flip that that comes with everything that really servant leadership actually is mm. and the disproportionate impact that a building a performance culture has on the ability to deliver on the aspirations of the business the better uh, you know gone are the days of the dictatorial uh, um you know um sort of uh, always right CEO just doesn't work. I, yeah. I mean, it's like a, I mean, it's like a manager of a football team never having played football and having no sense of what tactics are and not being a good man manager. It just mm. makes no sense, does it? Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, for me, I mean, I, I would say I've learned more from the places that were not great that I worked at and the, the managers that were not great managers than mm. I did the ones that were great and the places that I loved great answer the book's question tell us about some of your favorite books this is our listeners favorite question by the way so no pressure fiction non-fiction financial services related whatever do you know what? I, it's it's an interesting one and i i hate i hate that question if i'm honest with you. i'd <laughs> like that because i just don't read like I, and, and i and i honestly i don't um i don't it's not because i'm like you know uh, i can read I just okay. don't find it, I don't find it fun. Um, and if I'm honest with you, I don't, um, I really don't almost have the time now um, to, to sort of do that. There are a few books that occasionally sort of mm. catch my, catch my interest. Um, but I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying sort of before. I mean, the content we try and create, uh, you know, we want to create content that is as entertaining as it is informative. Sure. And I think so few people sort of do that sure. that actually can almost kind of, you know, keep my interest for a really long period of time. Um, a few a few books that uh, I have actually been really sort of taken by uh, recently was uh, there's a really good author called Damien Hughes. OK. Um, he actually does a really good uh, podcast, actually, with Jake Humphreys looking at uh, performance cultures as well. Um, but there was two books. There was the the five steps to a winning mindset. And then there was a, a book that he wrote called The Barcelona Way. Okay. And both of them were about how organizations work best if they get a collective mindset and collectively set up a culture. Mm. Um, and talking particularly about the laterals between sports and business, which you know plays very much to um to my uh to my sort of hearts as well. But yeah. uh, I think I think organizations that really try and focus on those things really, really works as well. I mean, bizarrely, one of the things that I did read 
recently was um, so there's a, a book by uh, Thomas Kuhn who it's a real um, very scientifically focused book around the structure of scientific revolutions. Okay, and really the, I tried the reason I was that. Did it's you? hard. It's really hard. I it, tried. It, it, it's hard. <laughs> it's it's hard going. But yeah. what I what I find with scientific books is actually what they're creating is a mental model. Sure. And particularly that model, that particularly that book is about actually paradigm shifts and everything that comes with paradigm shifts. Um, and actually, I mean, to sort of go full loop on the conversation, really, I mean, we are in the midst of a paradigm shift from the analog to the digital world. Mm -hmm. um, and actually that frame of reference and the, the, the requirement of actors and players just sort of made me go back to thinking about that book uh, from you know, decades ago when I looked at it. So I picked up a copy and, and read it again. And it's, it's an interesting one for me. But yeah. uh, but generally, I mean, I have to say I'm a video guy. I'm an audio guy. So yeah. I'm much more likely to be listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos than I am <laughs> sitting there with a book. Okay, that brings me on to the next question then. Amazon Prime or Netflix? What are you streaming and watching these days? Uh, do you know what? I'm a sucker for everything. I got <laughs> Disney, got Disney Plus, we got Sky Go, we got wow. Netflix. We got, so, I mean, it, it really depends on where um, where the great content is. But sure. you know, I, I watch a lot of YouTube as well. Like mm. there is a uh, there is a lot of great content that people are producing themselves uh, and getting out there. Uh, and actually what you kind of find is that it's not all kind of, you know, kids opening eggs and, you know, uh, and sort of like non-celebrity celebrities. Sure. There are. Uh, at the moment that we live in, where anybody with a, a cell phone can record a video and post it online, there are some amazing experts in oh. their field who are sharing things. Um, the creativity so is just amazing, right? Yeah. On, on do you the, know what? And, and the thing that I'm finding with, I mean, everybody lives in a context bubble, and I think it's probably got worse. Um, probably in lockdown, you know, you're only meeting with your family who probably mm -hmm. think like you. Mm -hmm. You're only following people on social who probably think like you. You know, um, what I'm really changes. trying. Yeah, and what do you know? What I'm what I'm really enjoying is finding content that I really vehemently disagree <laughs> with, um, to actually understand the psyche of other people. I mean, there's a really good. Uh, there's a really. Uh, I don't agree with. I'd say at least ninety percent of what he says, right. but actually, there's a guy called Ben Shapiro. Oh, okay, yeah, and, and actually, I mean, right wing, yeah, ex uh, exactly. Republican. I'm like. Yeah, I don't, I don't agree with anything he says, but actually the way in which he's constructing his arguments and the way in which he's going about the thing that he's doing, there's a, there's a lot to be said. And, and, and even, uh, I mean, his daily show, there's a lot of great content that he's kind of putting together. The production quality of it is really yeah. interesting. Yeah. It's just sad that I just don't disagree with anything. I disagree with anything <laughs> he says. You know, like, hey, so. I've had a very similar thing with Donald Trump. Don't judge me, but let me finish Let me finish my argument. All right. So I've, I've only listened to, I can only listen to Donald, I've only ever listened to Donald Trump in 30 second or one minute snippets. I've never listened to him long form. So I couldn't actually tell you what what his actual arguments is i've only i only disagree with him because other people that i know like and trust also disagree with him so i've just taken it as a but i've never actually listened to him and i think what you're doing with ben shapiro is actually really interesting and most people don't do that they don't challenge the way that they think and the way that their mental models are constructed i think it's really fascinating not saying that i agree with donald trump by the way just putting that out there but i'm just saying that i haven't given him the time yeah, look. If you wanna, uh, if you wanna uh, address a disease, you have to understand it, right? Sure. <laughs> so, uh, I, yeah, I, I think if you uh, if you put the time in to really understand yeah. other people's perspective, and uh, look, I'm a big believer in uh, you know empathy, and usually, what has driven somebody to have a viewpoint on something understanding i mean it's like it's like spider-man right the the best part of those movies is always the origin story sure. and actually if you can really understand what has made somebody think something or act in a certain way well most people are good people most people have positive intent uh, and actually if you can understand what has led them to do those things or say those things or act in that way yeah. you can probably unpick why it is and, and sort of start from there rather than just presuming everybody's bad people or they're stupid or whatever you know so um that's so yeah we i really believe in your, well yeah that's how I mean, we with the origin story yeah there we go spider-man right <laughs> last couple of questions and then I'll, I'll let you go what advice would you give to a millennial or a young person who comes to you and says that they want to get their career started in the financial services or fintech world best place to start is start um i mean i i'd say 
any angle to get into it would be great. Um, I think show as much confidence as you can going into that world. I mean, really, my you know my superpower was being technical, but having a voice. Um, and actually, if you can have good understanding of something and being able to communicate it effectively, that's the main thing. Um, I mean, I, I would stick to my my point earlier on is uh, find opportunities. But if you don't find opportunities, be really uh, brutal about moving on. Mm. Um, because essentially experience, I mean, nobody at the end of the year career is going to kind of look back and be like, you know, uh, you know, I did a lot of great PowerPoint or, uh, you know, there's a, that report that I did in you sure. know, 2006, like right. it was amazing. You know, those yeah. pie charts, you know, really you've got to kind of look for the opportunities to um, disrupt and deliver capability that potentially impacts millions of people. Um, mm. And, you know, your career is yours. That would be my biggest advice because many people probably think that careers are something that a employee employer does to you sure. um but i think the moment you start taking accountability for your own career mm. um you realize that actually you're in control and there's something incredibly empowering by that really fascinating and my final question david what does it you know about growing fintech and financial services brands today that you wish you knew all those years ago at the beginning of your career um I think I think it comes down to I think when you're young you're so eager to prove yourself and actually the more senior you get you realize that it's not about proving yourself it's about improving other people um and I think that that point that I made earlier on around culture is is probably the biggest learning for me because I think you very early on you think it's about the best or the smartest or you know, how can I do this or how can I do this? And mm. actually, the, the the more senior in organizations that you get, the more you're a facilitator of success rather than necessarily the driver of success. Um, and if pe more people could get to that, you know, good leaders um, and good communication is predominantly listening to other people. You know, good communication is 99% listening and 1% speaking. Mm. Uh, and good leadership for me is 99% empathy towards the people that you're you're leading uh, and really being in an understand uh, in an understanding situation where you you know what it is to get the best out of those people to achieve the thing that you need to achieve um it's almost a uh letting go i think of control which actually gives uh, for me is uh, i found that reasonably easy just because of the the nature of the talented people that we brought into the organization so uh, the other thing I had to say particularly if you're starting a company I mean the old adage of uh, hire people who are smarter than you yeah uh, helps you go a real long way <laughs> David thank you so much for doing this no problem at all it's been great to chat we have been speaking with David Breer he is currently the CEO at 11FS if you enjoyed this conversation then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to all guests discussing all things innovation Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at nathan.innovate.show. Please head over to iTunes and give us a review. We would be unable to do this show without our own innovators. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Genevieve Magecki is our booker slash project manager. Marion Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Innovate, And we're done.